0: The Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at the future of the Irish economy. On Tuesday, the European Commission forecast that Irish GDP would shrink by 8.5% this year. While the OECD warned that the number of people employed in the state could fall by as much as 8.2% if there were to be a second COVID-19 outbreak. That's the equivalent of 170,000 jobs. And earlier today, the IDA said the level of multinational investment in Ireland could fall this year by as much as 40%. These mirror similarly bleak assessments by the central bank the ESRI and the government itself which has said the budget deficit this year could run to as much as 30 billion euro. So while not a surprise in the context of Covid-19 the forecasts are nonetheless quite shocking. So can the Irish economy be successfully rebooted? What should the new coalition government put in its planned July economic stimulus? Can we afford to keep borrowing on international markets to subsidise businesses and workers? And what about a no-deal Brexit? It hasn't gone away you know. To tease out these issues and more, I'm joined on the line by economist and Irish Times columnist Chris Johns and by Owen Burke-Kennedy of the Irish Times. Now, you're both very welcome, gentlemen. Chris Johns, I might start with you. The European Commission yesterday say, predicting that Ireland's economy would shrink by about 8.5% this year. Pretty bleak outlook uh, right across the European Union. The forecast actually much worse than it had anticipated earlier in the year. Does 8.5% shrinkage in the Irish economy, does that sound about right to you?
1: At the moment, it does, yes. I think. But it's important to stress that these forecasts are changing very rapidly. The Commission has called it, I think, an interim summer forecast to contrast it with its spring forecast of only a couple of months ago. And of course, all of its numbers for most countries, including Ireland, have been revised down. Uh, the forecasts are worse than, than before. And Forecasting at the best of times is, is, is um, you know, fraught with difficulties. And I think that it's, for obvious reasons, particularly difficult at the moment. The Commission did stress that there are considerable downside risks to these numbers. It obviously feels that the risk is skewed in one direction rather than the other. Um, the forecasts are based on an assumption of no second wave, which, of course, is a huge assumption and one that we all hope that comes comes true. Uh, The Commission was also at pains to point out that apart from the COVID risks, that Ireland's economic outlook is going to be affected by, as as you well know, between the future relationship between the EU and the UK. We keep calling it Brexit, but Brexit's already happened. It's now about the relationship. And it also emphasises the other favourite that we like to talk about is the international taxation environment and what the multinationals get up to here in the wake of those developments. So there's a lot of talk about risks not much chat about opportunity.
0: Yeah, sure. And the IDA ha, um, had a briefing this morning and they predicted that um, multinational investment in Ireland could, could be reduced this year by as much as 40%, which is, a, again, you know, a huge number that we, we could never have envisaged uh, pre-COVID.
1: No, those sorts of numbers would never have factored, been factored into anybody's forecasts. Uh, uh, the, the, but it, it, it's inevitable that the numbers are going to be big so that's for things like FDI. If you're sitting in a big company at the moment, the most natural thing to do is nothing. Um, and so even if you do end up investing in Ireland, it's going to be pushed out. Hopefully, that's what this is, this is all about, is that this is investment that, that's going to come eventually. And we're just talking about timing issues. But if it's investment that never comes, then obviously that has a permanent effect.
0: Yeah, now, Chris, I know you spend time in Dublin and in London as well. So um, how do you think Ireland has coped with the Covid crisis so far uh, compared
1: to, let's say, the UK? much better. Um, I think that's a very easy call, a very easy answer to make, quite actually. I'm chuckling, but it's more more hysterical chuckle than, than an amused one. Um, it's been an end-to-end uh, mess up in in the, in the UK from the... The, the biggest thing that they did wrong, of course, was lockdown too late. And uh, the capacity of the state to manage through this very complex issue has been fundamentally called into question in the UK. Uh, yes, there were similar issues in Ireland, but here we seem to have gotten our arms around them much quicker and much better than in the UK. Uh, both countries had a problem with care homes. The one in the UK appears to have been catastrophic. Um lots of other issues to do with testing and tracing. Ireland has got an app now. The UK promised one months ago and still doesn't have one that works. Um, The list goes on, but Ireland's done an awful lot better than the UK.
0: Omar Kennedy, you've been following the Exchequer numbers all year, and I suppose we started out the year in a very good position in January and February, and then suddenly, wallop, uh, the pandemic hit and everything changed. Just walk us through some of the headline numbers and just how bad the Exchequer figures are for the government at the minute.
2: Yeah, well, um, the, I suppose the best starting point when looking at the Exchequer numbers is the deficit at the moment, and that has swelled to about 5.3 billion in June. Now, that's just the difference between what the government spends and what it takes in in taxes. Now, just to put that in perspective, this time last year, we had a surplus of 260 million. So we've gone down about um, over 5 billion and the bulk of that deterioration is being led by spending, as you might expect, on the two government um, wage support schemes. So they've pushed us into a sort of deficit figure for June and that's likely to get much worse because those schemes are going to be in place for some months to come. Now, it wasn't all bad. Uh, as usual, um, corporation tax, the great gift that just keeps on giving, came in way ahead um, of, of, of what the government uh, thought they were going to get. Um, and I suppose uh, your listeners are kind of used to hearing that. But at this time, it came in 1.9 billion, 48 percent ahead of target. So that cushioned the blow a little bit for us. And. Um, then the main tax head, income tax, came in, uh, this is I'm talking about now for six months, came in around 10.6 billion, which was actually uh, probably the most eye-catching and probably the big plus. It was much um, stronger uh, than most people thought, and the government revised their targets, uh, you know, when the when the pandemic first hit back in March. So they were even expecting, even in a revised way, um, much less than this. So it seems that uh, income tax has held up much better than anybody expected. And there's there's reasons for this. Uh, it's likely that, um, well, for a start, a lot of workers who aren't working are on the government's wage subsidy scheme, and that means they're still paying tax. But the bulk of the workers that have been hit by the lockdown have been in consumer facing industries, in the hospitality one in particular, and in retail. And a lot of those workers aren't highly paid. And therefore, they're not paying uh, a lot of tax. So on, on that front, income tax has held up pretty well. The place where we're probably going to be hit hardest is in VAT, because that reflects consumer activity, which has been severely curtailed. So in the um, six months so far, we're about 20 percent down, 1.5 billion down on what we might have expected to have. And that's probably going to get worse uh, in the in the coming months.
0: Now, and we have a new coalition government in place uh, comprising Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party. And the programme for government, at least on paper, is quite an ambitious one in terms of what they want to do. And they're talking about a July stimulus plan. Have we any sense of what's likely to be in that economic plan? Yeah, they've been uh, quite tight lipped about what's going to be in the plan. And the programme
2: for government was, you know, very aspirational and very light on numbers. But the indications we're getting uh, from government at the moment is that it's going to do two things. It's going to basically be directed at trying to repair the balance sheets of SMEs, which is the big eyesore in how we're dealing with the pandemic at the moment. And the second thing it's going to do is it's going to give us clarity on where the two government uh, income support schemes are going. So... um, the government is trying to get people, I suppose, off the pandemic uh, unemployment payment and onto the wage subsidy scheme. That's the hope. At the moment, um, the, the, the numbers still on the pandemic unemployment uh, payment are still quite high and surprisingly high. I think the government thought that, you know, a lot of people would be coming off that. But it seems businesses are still wary of the level of demand out there. And of course, uh, our lockdown, maybe in, you know, business lobby group terms has gone on longer and has been more restrictive than ones in other countries. So at the moment, it's a, it's a, it's a very kind of tender consumer environment. But the two things we should get from that stimulus uh, um, package is just clarity on these wage subsidy schemes
0: and some something
2: more for SMEs. <laughs>
0: Right. Um, Chris, the wage subsidy scheme is due to run out uh, at the end of August. I think everybody expects it to be extended. And in fact, I think it's going to go on in the UK until October, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm just wondering, are these affordable for the government uh, going forward? Um, we're able to borrow on international markets at very low rates at the minute, but how long will that continue?
1: How long is a piece of string? Uh, it, it depends in large part how long the ECB keeps, let's, let's call a spade a spade here, funding the Irish government. Um, we can talk about quantitative easing in its various forms. We can start using lots of jargon. We can start talking about helicopter money and all those other buzz phrases, buzzwords that we that we know and love. But what's actually happening is that we're able to borrow at next to no cost because the ECB is printing the money. That's what's happening. And for as long as it does that, we can do this. Now, obviously, there has to be a limit to that somewhere. The German Constitutional Court has tried to find that limit um, and and it looks like it's failed on recent developments. So it's clearly going to continue for a while. How much longer? Um, it's going to have to be until this virus is sorted, either you know through it magically disappearing or more likely um, vaccine or other, other medical interventions are, are finally found. So we hope that sooner rather than later. But if the ECB were to stop doing this, Funding the Irish and indeed all the other members of the Euro governments, um, we would be in a lot of trouble. I suspect our interest rates would then start to rise, and it could get very problematic very quickly. I expect them to keep printing the money. Actually, um, I think that uh, it, it is likely to continue for the foreseeable future until this virus is dealt with. So we're going to be there's going to be a legacy of an enormous debt pile but a huge chunk of it is actually going to be held by the ECB, which creates a very interesting dynamic for thinking about about the future. On the wage schemes, yeah, in the UK, I think SUMAC, the British Chancellor, has just announced that they're going to try and wind down their furlough scheme um, by the end of October. And he's come up with all sorts of whiz-bang announcements today, um, as we've been speaking, actually. Um, One of them is to... Uh, encourage furloughed workers to be rehired. Every one of those, um, £1,000, will be given to the employer that brings back a furloughed worker. And that's a multi-billion package in and of itself. He's announced a cut-in stamp duty to try and give the housing market um, a lift. Uh, He's announced measures, uh, a subsidy, if you like, a gift to diners in restaurants and takeaways um, of up to £10 uh, a person over the next few months, to try and encourage people to go out and spend. That speaks to the demand problem um, that, you, that you mentioned. So the British certainly, in their July statement, we've got one coming, the British have had theirs today, um, are frankly throwing everything at it.
0: Yeah, in a recent column in the Irish Times, actually, you, your advice to the Irish government was spend, 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 and spend some more. What do you think they should put in the July stimulus?
1: Well, I, I think it's an interesting template, what SUNAC is doing. Because they, you know, it's, it's <laughs> So not what a lot of orthodox economics would suggest, like the cutting stamp duty, for example. Um, one might one suggest that just as here, the UK has a housing supply problem, not a housing demand problem. But these are very, very strange times. And I think that, that we are going to have to take risks that we wouldn't have taken in more normal circumstances. And I know that you know increasing the demand for housing goes against most, or, most orthodox economic advice. But at this these peculiar times, I think it's, it's probably the right thing to do to err on that side of of the risk spectrum. Um, But uh, I I think spending is, is, you know, they've got, I think the belief that I would take out of Sumat's book if I was the Irish government is is not necessarily to copy the measures, um, look at them and see if any of them make individual sense. Um, I'm not sure encouraging people to go into restaurants is actually a good idea from a health perspective and, and that's a different discussion. Um, but you've got you've got to keep the demand side of the economy going. Otherwise, the supply side will eventually collapse. So, yeah, have a look at that. But I think I, I take on board from what sunak has done. The single most important principle is that he's throwing everything that he's got at it and that and, and erring on the side of taking more rather than less monetary risk. And I think
0: that's the right model. Uh, on opening up the economy and the timing of all of that, I mean, it's open to criticism, I guess, and the government was definitely getting it in the neck in the early days that they weren't opening up uh, quickly enough. They accelerated the programme, the roadmap for reopening the economy, and now suddenly we've had some issues around pubs and people congregating outside certain pubs in Dublin City, for example. And now they're talking about possibly not allowing pubs to reopen on July 20th, and they might slow down um, the reopening of some parts of the economy. So how has Ireland fared, I wonder, against uh, other countries in terms of reopening the economy? Um, Are we going too slow? Are we moving too fast? What's, What's your view?
2: Well... It sort of depends on your perspective. The business lobby groups here uh, say that we're around six weeks behind continental Europe and they're uh, touting this kind of Google mobility data, which kind of tracks consumers and people as they move around the city and they move into various different retail zones. So they say we're around six weeks behind the rest of Europe. And um, and they then give examples of kind of Germany, the Netherlands seem to be ahead of the posse, the Nordics seem to be a little bit behind. The government now would respond and by saying, well, you know, it's better to have people coming back out into a very safe, secure environment where consumer activity then will be kind of more likely to return back to normal levels where if they come out too soon and there's a mini flare up. Uh, or a resurgence of the disease, then people will be doubly scared and maybe not likely to come out for months on end. So it's, it's, it's a very delicate balance and a delicate process. Uh, we've got large parts of the workforce and the economy on life support and transitioning back to that kind of normal phase, whichever it is, is gonna be difficult. Um, that, that Google mobility data tells us that uh, activity is around 30% Behind where it was in January and February. A uh, best case scenario a scenario in, in kind of Germany and, and the Netherlands is about 10% down. So that's kind of where we are. We're definitely behind the curve in that, but maybe for good reason we'll have to see.
0: At Davy, we know uncharted territory can be a challenge. We've been in business since 1926, and since then we've advised many different clients through many global and national crises. Some will seek comfort in the safe and familiar, while others will embrace the opportunity to try something new. Throughout the years, we've not only listened to our clients, we've got to know you personally, helping us advise you on a financial life plan that suits you best. Davy. It's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Chris, what does this tell us about the future? Because there's going to be a lot more state involvement, isn't there, uh, in business, for example, the like of which we couldn't have expected, we couldn't have predicted uh, before the pandemic. Um, The hospitality and the airline industries have been absolutely hammered now. We've we've no idea what they're going to look like uh, in two or three years' time. And there's no doubt, I think, in Britain and in Ireland there needs to be more investment in public services and particularly in the health sector. So when dust settles on all of this, how do you think the shakeout will work? What will the retail sector look like, for example?
1: One of the things that we've learned from economies that have been reopening earlier than Ireland is that demand actually comes back a wee bit quicker than, than forecasts previously asserted. I mean, we've had it in various continental countries. We've had it in the United States. Um, and then, of course, in the United States, we've got the second wave or maybe just continuation of the first. And that dynamic is set up because maybe they reopen too quickly. But when things have reopened, things have come back much quicker than economists have typically forecast. But often in sectors um, different to the, what it, at the sectoral level, it hasn't come back in the same way. Um, different countries have different experiences of this, and it depends upon consumer behavior. And one of the consequences, I think, one of the contrasts that I paint between what's happened in the UK and Ireland, one of the things that I've noticed, I'm, I'm sitting in Ireland at the moment, is that generally people in Ireland are much, much more nervous about going out, about being in a pub, despite all the, the stories about being in a pub or a restaurant or, or, or generally just being out and about than they are in the UK. It's much more of a cavalier attitude in the UK than it is. People here seem to be much more frightened of this disease than they are in the UK. And I think that will have long-lasting economic effects um, because I think that the, the people going back to retail, people going back to restaurants, people going back to pubs, yes, there was an initial surge in some areas, but I think overall they're going to be very slow. Behaviourally, they're going to be very slow to do it because, because of fear of, of this disease. So that's going to have long-lasting long lasting consequences. Um, I, this side of a, of a vaccine or the virus magically disappearing, uh, I personally wouldn't go into a pub or a restaurant. Um, in terms of the data that I've seen, up to 97% of the cases of COVID globally have occurred indoors rather than outdoors. Outdoors is relative, relatively safe. Indoors is the big no-no. And I think that penny is beginning to drop as as the data is emerging and scientists are discovering more and more. So if you think about that in, going indoors comment, particularly into crowded places that are indoors that have poor ventilation, That really speaks for big trouble ahead for for places like pubs and restaurants. In the United States, in the Sun Belt, where we know the sun actually uh, contributes to the um, degrading of this virus, one of the reasons why they've had the upsurge in cases is that they're all locked inside air-conditioned bars and restaurants. And I know one investment bank globally has been using restaurant opening data to predict where COVID is going to flare up two weeks hence if that, that correlation is that high. So I think consumer behaviour obviously has changed, and I think there's going to be some pretty permanent changes to it going forward as well.
0: What about offices, Chris? Everybody's talking about remote working, that it's here to stay. Uh, and just taking your comments there on uh, on being indoors, a lot of people obviously are going to be nervous about being in large offices with large groups of people and air conditioning, um, you know, some places are good, but some places aren't good. So what, what's the future of, of offices and remote working? Well, ventilation is,
1: I think, going to be a focus on how, well, how modern and how well ventilated your offices are, how your filtration system on your air conditioning is, is going to become a focus um, for, for lots of building owners Ironically, being on an airplane is actually quite safe from, an, from a, an air circulation point of view. A lot of these stories that you hear about air travel are myths. Some of them are true, but not all of them. And um, airlines claim, I think not unreasonably, that their, their air quality is filtered to operating room, surgical operating room standards, and that viruses don't, in fact, travel around the cabin of an aeroplane via the ventilation system. So that's a particular example of of good ventilation. We know that lots of offices probably do have varying standards of of, of ventilation. The back-to-work thing, that's a pendulum that will swing back, but it won't go back to to the way it was. I know of um, at least one chief executive here in Dublin that has businesses in two large buildings, and he's pretty sure that he's only going back to one, uh, for instance. And I think there's going to be a lot of that Your perspective on whether homeworking has worked for you varies depending on who you are. If you speak to people like me, it's been fine. I do most of my work from home anyway, and so it hasn't been a big deal for me. And I've enjoyed getting to grips with all of this new technology that we use to do things like this. And If you speak to young parents, uh, fathers or mothers or both, who um, have had young children at home while they've been working from home, you should hear the very graphic descriptions of what it's been like. And and, um, they they have not enjoyed the experience in in, in terms of the the people that I have been speaking to. So it depends who you are. A lot of people think that it's been great. Some people are dying to get back to the office.
0: Owen, uh, the European European Commission in its report suggests that a return to growth next year is on the cards. But is that realistic? The thing thing about all these growth uh, forecasts, I mean... They all seem to be
2: corralling around the same numbers. I don't think I'm not sure if your listeners are, are noticing this, but like the, the the predicted year-on-year fall in Ireland, depending on who you ask, the central bank, the government, now the European Commission, all around eight or ten percent. That's the same in a lot of countries. The predicted fall or the the, the, the fall in GDP in April, the worst month, was like twenty-five percent in a lot of countries. And similarly, the three-month fall is around 20%. So I think what, what the forecasters are doing, and it's a pretty inexact science, is they're basically just uh, looking at the consumer-facing sectors uh, and, and you know, cutting them off for the period of time and then extrapolating a figure from that. It's, it's very, very difficult to see where, where, you know, if those forecasts are going to be exact or, or if they're even going to be near uh, what they're, predicting, you know, because it all comes down to just how fearful the kind of post-lockdown consumer is. And Chris makes an interesting point about people being more fearful here and less fearful in the UK. Those 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 things are going to play out and nobody really has eyes, uh, you know, on how, how it's going to work and the level of demand that's going to basically funnel back in and how quickly that level of demand is going to funnel back in to the economy. So, I mean, the central bank last week, if you had noticed, instead of really forecasting, they went into scenarios. So scenario with uh, you know, a resurgence of the virus and a second wave, or a scenario with no resurgence and no second wave. So they've kind of nearly dumped the forecasting process. So the question you asked about, you know, are we can we can we hope for a, a, a you know a rebound next year? It's it's just really in the lap of the gods at the moment.
0: Chris, there's a couple of important external events uh, taking place this year that will have an impact on Ireland and annual recovery. One of them is Brexit. I know... You're saying that we shouldn't be calling it that anymore but for shorthand purposes let's call it brexit and um, there's due to be uh, a deal or not uh, by the end of this year on the future relationship between the eu and the uk and the other is the american election and whether donald trump gets re-elected or not or, or joe biden gets to go to the white house and that could have a very significant impact uh, for example on uh, global trade uh, donald trump has had trade spats with both the eu and china for example in the past uh, couple of years so Brexit hasn't gone away. Um, it hasn't been talked about much, I guess, in the pandemic, but it looks as if Britain is on course for a, a no-deal scenario at the minute. Is that your reading of it?
1: It is. Uh, the, the, the odds of a no-deal scenario seem to change every day. Um, if you'd asked me this question only last week, this day last week, I would have said that the mood music coming out of Brussels was actually getting better, Um and then it suddenly got an awful lot worse again. And that's the way it's going at the moment. We, 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 obviously, we're not on the inside of the talks. And there's a lot of sabre-rattling. There's a lot of jockeying for position because we are at the crunch moment over the next couple of months. Um, and I, th- I think that uh, one of the re- really things, that's, one of the things that really scared me was that the talk, most recent round of talks broke up early, which was not a good sign at all. And then all of the... Rumors and stories and behind-the-scenes briefings that one gets access to out of out of Brussels started saying again the two sides are as far apart as ever, and Boris Johnson has only been reported today, for example, as uh, table thumping over a Zoom call, one presumes, with with Angela Merkel, saying that um, that they're quite ha- they'd be quite happy to go with what's called the Australia solution, which is you know. <sighs> so so weird it's 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 almost laughable the australia solution isn't a solution it's the, it's the no deal scenario because australia doesn't have a deal with the eu um, it for, for for reasons of public relations and media management they've decided to call it something else other than a no deal because it doesn't sound quite as bad but this australia solution that he's threatening merkel with only today um is is the no deal and that would be dreadful for Ireland, of course. Um, it, it, it raises all sorts of issues, not least for the agricultural sector. Um, it looks like that, that, that Johnson has swallowed the idea of, of um, a border in the Irish Sea, one way or another, deal or no deal, there's one coming by the looks of things. Um, and uh, for yesterday, for example, they they applied to, to go through the EU process for establishing customs ports, customs posts, in the, the Northern Ireland ports, so it looks as if that that bitter pill has been swallowed. There's a chance of a deal, yes, absolutely. It, it, it's still there, um, but over the last few days, it's receded.
0: And Trump versus Biden, which one would be better for Ireland?
1: Oh, Biden. I mean, there's all sorts of different reasons why one would choose Biden over Trump, and this is this is nothing personal. I try try not to, to you know park my own prejudices here, but but. Um, from what I'm about to say, you'll you'll guess what they are. Um, you know, we, we, the world needs another trade war, like it needs a hole in the head. It needs things to be reopened rather than closed down. Um, I think uh, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times yesterday. Um, I know you sometimes uh, carry his pieces in the paper as well. I'm not sure if you've carried this one. It really is a superb piece. But it doesn't look at the minutiae of what Trump doesn't doesn't do in terms of trade wars and uh, multinational taxation and all the other things he he gets stuck into. It's at a higher level of of, of discussion, which is that um, pretty similar to Britain, the United States has shown itself unable to deal with this pandemic in terms of dealing with complexity. The state, the government simply doesn't work anymore. And as Wolf says, I think it's it's a very memorable quote, if the state doesn't work, nothing else does as well. And therefore, Trump being reelected would mean another four years of the United States not being a functioning state, which would be a disaster for everybody in the world, not just economically, but politically and socially as well. Um, It's a concern I share for the United Kingdom because the the machinery of government is clearly failing um, when it comes to this pandemic. And the the ability, again, to deal with complexity just just isn't there. So what we need going forward to deal with, A, the pandemic itself and the incredibly complicated decisions, very difficult choices that are going to face every government post-pandemic, God willing, we get there. Um, We need functioning, um, well-equipped governments. And um, we we certainly ain't got that in the States. And this is the main reason why I would hope for a Biden administration is that the machinery of government then starts to work again um, because it isn't at the moment.
0: All right. Well, I think everybody will probably share that sentiment. Uh, Chris Johnson, Umber Kennedy, thank you for joining me. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Chris Johns and Owen kennedy for their contributions. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davey, for their continued support. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm Ciarán Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay well.